Very good to see you. I want to start this morning with a special announcement. You know, over the last several weeks, we have uh, set out chairs in the auditorium. Many of those chairs have been filled. I think we set out 40-something chairs last week and all, but a few were filled. Part of that's because of COVID. We're leaving space between the pews. But before COVID even, we had another 6.5% growth rate happening here at Oldham Lane, which, if you don't know anything about that, that's a, that's a big deal. And what other church can make the claim that during COVID, we've, had, we've added 30-something people? You know, that's amazing that our online stuff has done that well. So we've got to create more room again. I was just in the family center. There was, uh, it was fuller than it's been in a long time. So we feel like the best option to do that is to take the concurrent format that we already do and spread it out a little bit. So beginning October the 18th, we will have a two-service model. So what that looks like is first service will be at 815. Everything will be in the auditorium, by the way, as far as worship. So first service in the auditorium at 815. All go to Bible class together at 930. Second service begin at 1030. Now, the idea behind this is try to keep the times as close to what we normally do anyway. So we don't want to start getting out at noon when we were used to getting out at 11, right? Then we can't beat everybody to the restaurant. So we want to make sure that we kind of try to end at about 1120 to 1130. We also want to be sure that as we go to this model, we can still be together as much as possible. So we'll go to Bible class together. And we have the benefit that most churches that do two services don't meet on Sunday night, and we do. And so we will put a lot of energy into our Sunday night service as far as that being the time we have fellowship activities, you know, of course, small groups, all those kind of things. So I lay that on you, and I know some of you may be saying, well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I like that. And I understand. I don't know that it's ideal, but we are a long ways away from building a new auditorium which would solve this, right? And there really just wasn't any other option that made sense. And so this is what we're gonna go forward with starting the 18th to hopefully clear up some space so that we can be together and worship together. Now, the elders and I were talking about this and the staff and we were debating this and talking about it. And I think everybody in the room said, well, this is, this is not ideal. This is not, nobody wants this. And I was like, I, I, I do. You know, I mean, I know that's selfish, but the last month or two, I've sprinted down the hall to get in here in time. I haven't had communion on a Sunday morning, and I don't know when, and uh, my wife would kind of like me to worship with her. So um, I'm going to throw that in as maybe pity. So uh, no, thank you so much for being patient through all of this, and we're hoping that this allows us to kind of open up space and so that we can you'll make accommodations for all the people that want to be here and worship with us. We are a growing congregation, and a growing congregation has to make concessions and try to find a way to, uh, to, to get everybody in, and because the fuller you get, the more people come in and say, well, I can't find a seat or a parking place. I don't want to come here. So we want to make sure that there's plenty of room. All right, announcement over. I want to say this before I move on. Chad, who works with putting our people in place during the worship service, leading prayers and all that, and Scott, who does that in the family center. Of course, all will be in the auditorium now, but uh, we are going to send out a survey probably tomorrow or next week, 
asking, you know, what service do you think you might go to? We're not locking you into that. We're not saying you have to go to that one. But just, you know, at least for the first little while, which one do you think you'll go to? And that's going to give Chad and Scott an opportunity to look at and say, okay, then I can plug them in at this service or at that service. And some of you, we may just kind of shoulder tap and say, hey, if you could, we need you to lead a prayer at the first service, second service, something like that. That's going to be the biggest thing is the logistical issues that we think we can work out pretty well. Again, I think it's helped us that we've done the concurrent service because we're just taking that model and spreading it out. You know, it's, this is not newfangled. It's just you're, you're taking the same concept and, and dividing it. So be looking for that. Now, we're looking at Jesus as Redeemer. And when I was about 13 years old, most of my Sundays were spent at a little place in Paragould, Arkansas called Circus Circus. Circus Circus was an arcade. This was before video gaming consoles were popular. And so every Sunday, my friend and I would hop on our bicycles and we would ride to Circus Circus, which was a feat in and of itself. You ever try to ride a bicycle with like 10 pounds of coins in your pockets? You had to have these tokens, and so we would, we would drive to Circus Circus, and we would eat all the crumbs before the Pac-Man ghost would eat us, or we would try to save the damsel in distress in Donkey Kong, or defend the universe in Galactica, Space Invaders, and it was all good. It was all good until you saw those dreaded words pop up on the screen. You know the words I'm talking about? Yeah. The goal of any video game is to do what? To clear the board, to, to beat all the levels, to, to, to win every round, to, to you know, rescue the princess from the evil villain. And in order to do that, you usually need more than one life, don't you? You need multiple lives because there's not many people who can beat the video game with just one life. And so you earn points in order to earn more lives so that you can have as many safety nets as possible as you try to beat the game. And we, as Christians, need all the redemption that we can get. This isn't a video game. This is real life, and you only get one. We don't get multiple lives because we performed at a high level or we met a certain goal. This is it. However, because we have a Redeemer... This life doesn't end with the words game over. It ends with the words to be continued. Turn with me to the book of Ruth. Do you believe that Jesus is found in the book of Ruth? Well, if you don't believe it, stay with me because you're going to see it when we, when we get done here. In March of 2008, my family moved to Abilene, Texas. And when I got here, I realized certain things were already in place, already set in order. One of those things was a summer series where we invite speakers from around our area to come in and speak on a given topic on Wednesday nights. One of the elders at the time, Lowell Maxey, was in charge of the summer series. And he had come up with the theme, the preeminence of Jesus in the Old Testament. And my first thought was, good luck with that. Man, can you imagine being a guest speaker and having to come up with the preeminence of Jesus in the book of Judges or Deuteronomy, you know? Let me, let me let you in on a secret with preachers. When we get asked to go speak somewhere else on a certain topic, we don't come up with a completely new sermon. Typically, if you've been preaching long enough, you come up with a sermon from your file and you rework it so that you can deliver it wherever you're asked to speak. So, 
If you're devising a preaching plan, a summer series, equip like we do here or whatever, you try to make it as broad as you can so that you don't wear out the people who are coming to speak because they have other things to do. Preachers, you know, uh, regardless of what some think, they don't work just one day a week. They got a lot of things going on, right? And so when I saw this, this theme, I thought, wow, I mean, good luck with that. But then the more I studied the Old Testament, the more I started looking at the Old Testament and setting up the New Testament, I started thinking, you know, maybe Lomaxi is onto something. This guy may know more than I, than, than I do about this. And as I began investigating, you see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. It's not as hard as it looks. And once you see him, you can't unsee him. Look with me at Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Now we're starting at the end. So let, let's back up and set the stage for a moment. Here's the backstory: Naomi and Ruth are arriving in Bethlehem, both of them widows. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons. One of those sons was married to Ruth, and these two women have lost everything. When they lost their husbands, they lost everything. On top of that, there's a famine in the land. Now, it's important to note that during this time in history, when a man died, he lived on through his children. And so if a man never had children of his own, his brother was obligated to marry his wife and to continue the family name by having children with her. That way, the name of the deceased would continue on through the brother and wife's offspring. I know that's a little confusing, but hopefully that makes sense. Naomi and her husband had two sons, but unfortunately, they both died, and neither of the sons had children of their own. Now, the most tragic thing was not that Naomi wouldn't have grandkids to love and cherish, no, the most tragic thing is that having no children, having no husband, they were cut off from the land, cut off from Israel because they could not perpetuate the family name. And so enter Boaz, and Boaz had a big heart for people. Boaz loved people, and he loved these two poor, destitute women, and he wanted to take care of them. 
And so he, he gives these vulnerable women some grain. Now keep in mind that Ruth was a Moabite, a foreigner. And Moabites were hated by the Jewish people. And Naomi was a bitter old woman at this point that thought that God was against her because of all that she had lost. And so it is during the most difficult time for these two ladies that Boaz shows tremendous kindness. But beyond that even, we see that Boaz was Naomi and Ruth's redeemer. Did you pick up on that? Now, redeemer in the Hebrew is the word meaning kinsman. And so Boaz was kinfolk. And because he was kinfolk, he was a part of their family, which means that he had a legal right to redeem these two women. He could purchase the right to take them out of poverty and to bring them back into prosperity. And this all goes back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 23, it says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But... If he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So you can read chapter 25 in its entirety and see more, but hopefully you get the idea that God established this year of Jubilee every half century where all the land reverted back to its original owners. And if those original owners were not alive, then the closest relative, the Redeemer, had a chance to buy it back. And so Naomi and Ruth lost their property because their husbands were dead. They had to sell their plot of the promised land in order to stay afloat. However, they find redemption in Boaz. As their redeemer, as their kinsman, he had a legal claim to that plot of land and could buy it back. Now, chapter 4 tells us that there was a number one kinsman, right? That there was somebody else who was first in line. So he had first right of refusal. And so Boaz is talking to him saying, hey, you can buy this parcel of land back. But if you do, you got to take Naomi and Ruth with you. And basically, the number one kinsman says, yeah, that's okay. I appreciate it, but that's a little too much to take on. And so, enter Boaz. Now, he has the opportunity to provide and protect and buy back the land as well as Naomi and Ruth. And then you see in verses 13 through 17, chapter 4. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We don't always get happy endings in Scripture, do we? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night in talking about Jonah. We don't get the happy ending there that we long for. We don't get the happy ending with the rich young ruler or with the old, older son in the parable of the prodigal son. But here we do, right? 
Here we have that happy ending that we all long for. Did Boaz or Ruth or Naomi have any concept of Jesus as the Redeemer? I don't think so. But there is no doubt that this story, like all of the Old Testament, points to our Redeemer. When we read the Bible, we often put ourselves in the position of someone that we're reading about. We've talked about this before. So if we're reading about David and Goliath, we put ourselves in the position of David. And we say, I'm a David. And we think of ourselves singing that stone and toppling Goliath. Or we read the story of Gideon going into battle as a valiant warrior, outnumbered 450 to 1. And we say, yeah, I'm a Gideon. I can be a Gideon. We've heard sermons like that, right? You can be a David. You can be a Gideon. But the truth of the matter is... If you were living in that time, you'd be Joe Israelite standing on the sideline wishing you could do something, being completely helpless, needing a Savior, needing someone to step in and do something. Truth of the matter is, we're more Ruth than we are Boaz. We might rather be Boaz, but the truth of the matter is, we're more like Ruth. It's kind of like when Jesus is berating the Pharisees and we say, yeah, give it to them, Jesus, not realizing we can be awful pharisaical at times. We'd probably be in their shoes more than in Jesus' shoes if we're honest. When it comes to the story of Boaz and Ruth, we'd love to be Boaz, but truthfully, we're more like Ruth. And Boaz is more like Jesus because Boaz brought Naomi and Ruth back from the dead. You realize that? In fact, we could say that he brought the whole family back from the dead. He restored the family name. He perpetuated the family line. All that was lost was bought back. He reclaimed Naomi and Ruth's inheritance. He took them from exile and famine to the promised land. And is that not precisely what our Redeemer has done for us? Jesus has brought us back from the dead, both spiritually And someday, physically, he has purchased us with his own blood. He has given us an inheritance. He has taken us out of exile and leading us toward the promised land. Like Boaz, Jesus has shown incredible kindness to us. He has ended our exile and lifted our spirits. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has put an end to the spiritual famine and has given us an abundant life. He gave us new life, a do-over, a clean slate. He is our jubilee. What a beautiful story, right? And a story that we see that we are a part of. And a story that began at least in part with a very unlikely couple. Look at Matthew chapter 1 now. And in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this genealogy that we're tempted to just pass over because we think it has no bearing on the subject. It's just just set up. Now, there's a lot here. Look at this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. What's really interesting about Matthew's genealogy is that it tells a story. It tells uh, the Jewish history. It's broken up into three sections that define three monumental stages in Jewish history. You see, the first section moves from Abraham to David and signifies the rise of Israel's greatest king. Then the second section goes from David to Israel's exile, 
And the third, third section moves from deportation to the Messiah. Each section lists 14 names. And the reason why is because they wanted it to be easy to memorize. There was no printing press. And so word of mouth was the way that you passed along these things. So they wanted it easy to remember. And within this genealogy, Matthew tells the story of kingship, of exile, and restoration. And that's our story, isn't it? I mean, that's our story. We were born for greatness, but we, were, we destroyed the greatness. However, thanks be to God that a Savior came to restore the greatness. You see, Matthew's big purpose for writing his gospel account is to show the big picture of God and Israel and how it all leads to the Messiah. The theme of Matthew's gospel is threefold. To show that Jesus is from the line of David, to show that Jesus is a new Moses, and to show that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in this first section, right here from the beginning, it starts with an assumption. Did you notice that? It begins with an assumption. Matthew assumes that you know everything that went on before this. He assumes that you know all the details from the Old Testament. And what we see is that through this genealogy, Matthew is highlighting how Jesus is from the line of David, the son of Abraham, which means that he fulfills the promise God made to Abraham to bless all the nations. And Boaz and Ruth were a part of this. Ruth, a Moabite, a foreigner, despised by the Jews. What is she doing in this genealogy? Not only that, she's a woman. Women were not in Jewish genealogies. In fact, if you wanted a pure genealogy, you had to go all the way through it with only Jews listed. So how do you have this Moabite woman, this foreigner, this despised woman, who is also a woman, how do you have her included in this genealogy? I'll tell you why, because we're Ruth. She represents us. We are her. We are Gentiles. Outside of Christ, exiled, foreigners, aliens and strangers as Peter calls us. Maybe this doesn't set your hair on fire like it does mine, but this is good stuff. As a child, I used to play with an Etch-a-Sketch. You know what an Etch-a-Sketch is? Some of you uh, younger folks probably don't, but if you're old like me, you know what an Etch-a-Sketch is. It was hard to draw circles, but you could draw some pretty cool, clean lines. And I saw some people do some pretty elaborate drawings with an Etch-a-Sketch. But the best thing about an Etch-a-Sketch is if you messed up, you know what you could do? You could just shake it really hard, and it would clear it, and you could start over. Wouldn't it be nice if life were like that? You max out your credit cards, shake them real hard, and erase all the debt? What if you said something you regret, you just shake your head really hard and then take it all back? When I was a kid, we had an open field by my house, and all the neighborhood kids would gather there and play wiffle ball. They wouldn't let us play real baseball because it was too close to houses. But the only negative about this open field was it had a huge tree in the middle of it. And inevitably, somebody would hit the wiffle ball up in the tree and it'd get stuck. And when that happened, the rules were clear. Everybody shouted, do over, and whoever hit the ball in the tree got to go back to home plate and start all over again. Wouldn't it be nice if life were like that? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a do-over? Well, we do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Think about that. Jesus takes the book from the attendant, reads a couple of verses, closes it, and sits down. Some of you are thinking, Chris, I wish you'd do that more, but maybe the shortest sermon ever preached, right? And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus closes the book, he sits back down, and he tells everybody, I'm here. What I just read to you, that's me. What Isaiah was talking about, I'm it. Now, unfortunately, they didn't receive this news very well, and they tried to throw him off a cliff, but I think hopefully you get the idea. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and Jesus applies it to himself, and there is a quote from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a reference to what? To Jubilee. In fact, the phrase to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord is a reference to the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, which Ruth, Naomi benefited from, which we benefit from as well. Listen to me, folks. Jesus is our Jubilee. He is our Redeemer. You know, there is another genealogy in the Gospels. It's found in Luke. And Luke has a very different format to his genealogy. He traces it all the way back to Adam. Do you know why? To show that we all have a connection in mankind, even Jesus. Jesus is our kinsman, our redeemer. He's our kinfolk, right? Literally and spiritually. And he is our jubilee. I was watching an interview the other day with a guy named Joshua Allen Harris. Josh Harris is a street artist in New York City. In fact, I've got some of his work you can see. It's kind of cool, isn't it? What's interesting about Joshua Harris's work is it's all done from trash. He finds old trash bags on the street around the subways and other places, and he puts them all together, and then he ties them to subway vents on the street so that when the air blows up, it fills these trash bags and makes something he would call a work of art, something that attracts people, visitors, tourists who want to see his work of art and admire it. It's interesting that what looks like a piece of trash is an amazing work of art when air is thrust into it and when somebody kind of has a vision for what it should be. And that is certainly the case with us. What seems like trash is really a beautiful creation when the breath of God is breathed into us, when His Spirit animates us. We're nothing special on our own. In fact, we're poor, we're destitute, we're hopeless, much like Naomi and Ruth. But God paid a heavy price so that you and I could walk around and sing, I'm redeemed. 
Don't take that for granted. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? Every single day we shout hallelujah to God and thank him for the redemption that comes from our kinsman, Jesus Christ. Do you need a redeemer? Let me answer that for you. Yes, you definitely do. Do you know about the Redeemer? This is your year of Jubilee. If we can help you connect with the Redeemer through Bible study, through prayer, if you're ready to take a next step in faith, whether that be the very beginning stages and learning more about this Redeemer, or maybe you've studied and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need may be, let us help you. Don's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come? So we stand and as we sing.